Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, welcome uh, to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm the teacher pastor here. Uh, and you, if you're a first-time guest, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are on part two of a series we kicked off last week called This Beautiful Life. And uh, it's been a series on resonance, uh, a series on beauty, uh, and all of those types of things. Um, and uh, just full disclosure, uh, this, this series, this idea came because I recently re-encountered a, uh, a book called uh, the, the Weight of Glory by a guy named C.S. Lewis, famous for Narnia stuff, but um, had a bunch of different essays. And he preached a sermon once uh, in a church in 1941 in Oxford, uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, or I don't think it was Presbyterian, it doesn't matter. Um, and he delivered this message and he kind of like put it as one of the flagship essays for this collection of essays that he had uh, written. And I reread it as I do as I do his stuff all the time. And I thought, man, that would be good. I want to take a sermon that he preached and then I want to try and relook at it through uh, a different lens, my lens of not 1941, but you know, 2023 and then my personal experience of my stuff uh, and then do it this way. And so uh, instead of being, he did it in one time delivery setting. I am going to do it in four because I'm not as good of a communicator as he is. And, uh, and because it takes sometimes repetition for me to kind of grasp some things. And so hopefully that's uh, kind of an appealing thing for you as well. You don't have to read the book to play along. Uh, I will commit to the heavy lifting on that part of it, but I do would love for you to be a part of this, uh, this series. I know it's week two. And if you missed last week, you can always download our app or, or go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and catch up with that. Or if you have to be on the next couple of weeks uh, as, as well, um, participate, be a, a part of this. And then also, uh, I'm going to try and be as general as I can on, on a few things, but I want you to kind of think through it through the lens of your circumstances and your season of life and all of the things that you're going through, because I can't, there's no way I can address all of them, but I allow you the space. And we uh, try to be a church that allows you whatever context you are in to be able to kind of uh, interpret that in your way. So uh, last week, uh, we said that every once in a while, we come across things in life that feel like they remind us that this life is worth living. Um, we, we might not say the words, but we think them of, man, just this, isn't this a beautiful life? Like maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's a story, maybe it's a movie you went to and it was just, it was the right setting. It was the right people. You had a great dinner beforehand. You left, you get home and you just fell asleep. Your head hit the pillow and you thought, this is what life is all about. Or a book that you read, as soon as you put it down, you wish there were more chapters or there was a sequel or something uh, or, or a conversation with a friend, a night out, just everything was magical. It was just a, a, you know, a thing. It was just an amazing deal. And, uh, and, and you just find yourself going, this is a, uh, a beautiful life. And sometimes they come in bunches. Sometimes there's seasons of life where it just seems like they just, there's a lot of them. And that's when you're like, this is, I'm feeling good. Like, I'm, this is awesome. And there's times where it's been few and far between. And maybe that's the season that you're in. Like it's been a while since something has reminded you that this is a, truly a, a beautiful life. And isn't it true that when you try and recreate these moments or put your finger on exactly what it is that evince those feelings inside of you, uh, when we try and recreate it, it proves elusive. When we go back to the movie a second time or we read this book and we're like, this was amazing. Then we recommend it to a friend and then they read it and they get back to you and they're like, it was okay. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's you, that's a you problem. And then you go back and read it and you're like, no, maybe I was just 
in a weird season. I needed to hear that because this is not that good. Um, and But there's something about in those moments that when we appreciate them, when we understand them, they're, they're, they're reminders, they're, they're pointers towards this idea of, of it's a beautiful life. And if we go back and try and recreate it, we can't. It's just like this weird thing that we have to appreciate in the moment. And when we don't, we just, we, we wish we want to remind our future selves that, you know, take every moment when it comes and, and really uh, look through that and, and, and see this. So uh, Lewis reminds us this. He says, the books are the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them because it was not in them, but only through them. It is not in things, but only through things. When you feel like you come across things in life, you're like, this is life that's worth living. Just know that I'm sure Hawaii was amazing and Cabo was awesome, but it's not in that, but through that. And, and people who have to stay home tell ourselves that about your trip, that it was not, it's not Hawaii. It's the people who are there and they're here with me in Richland, Washington as it's freezing, right? Uh, we tell ourselves things, but it's not, it's not in things, but through them. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country where we have not yet visited. And isn't it true that after the fact, the whole thing can feel sometimes a bit silly, that you were so profoundly moved by something so incredibly simple, right? That we, we, we go through this sometimes and, and we are, we're, we're emotionally moved by something. And then later, like for the further away we get from that event or that scenario or that scene or whatever, we realize, ah, maybe that's just, that's not whatever. We commit to being more realistic, less drawn towards the imaginative because we said that life is lived somewhere, it vacillates in between the two spectrums of the reason-oriented rational version of you and then the imaginative take risks, do things, do crazy things uh, version of you. And oftentimes our world kind of pulls us to be more grounded, more well-grounded in our approach to the banality of our daily rhythms. Work, eat, sleep, repeat, work, eat, sleep, repeat, play on the weekends, go to church when we can, tell Brent we watch it online when we can't be there in person, right? All of these things that we go through and we do, um, and, and it can feel a little bit like, like our life, our natural rhythms uh, are kind of are pushed towards oftentimes what we would call the rational side of things or the reason-based approach to life, right? It's because it's reasonable for us to you know, keep and maintain a job to be able to pay the mortgage that we want to kind of do those things. And, and, and it's irrational sometimes for us to think that I deserve to go on this vacation or do these things, but you know that you need that too, right? So like, there's like this weird thing in between us. If we live all of our life here and we never do anything fun and never anything imaginative and never branch out, then then we're missing out. But if we live over in the imaginative and all we have to do is, is play, you have friends who live in the imaginative, it's just music festival and music festival and be like, you should get a job. You know, you should, you know, should, you should try a little bit more reason in your life. And, and so uh, we, we live in between these two things. And this series intentionally is a draw towards the imaginative because a lot of times in life, those things that point us to that feeling that we get of, man, this is genuinely a beautiful life is not a rationalist approach. It is the imaginative. It is something that we encounter in the imaginative that spices things up for us that goes, you know what? This is why life is worth living. So perhaps we're right to be drawn towards beauty, to desire residence, to, to find things in life that remind us that this life is worth living and that all of this means something. So- that's why you should listen. And that's why this is critically important. I think I got a little bit ahead of myself last week and I want to start with a little pre-work um, because uh, I think that there's a, a thing that was before that that kind of worked into that. So a, uh, we'll start with that. A common misunderstanding, I think, of Christianity is this idea of universal self-denial. 
that self-denial at all costs for the, for the purpose of self-denial. There is self-denial in Christianity. There's no doubting that Jesus said to his followers, if you wanna be a follower of me, take up your cross. The world's gonna hate you for this. They're like, they hated me. Like there's gonna be things in life you're gonna have to do that you don't wanna do. Um, and uh, that there is a, an element of self-denial in it for uh, learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. But uh, it's not self-denial for the sake of self-denial. It's not, it's because maybe you grew up in a, in a family or a, a church where the message was clearly, if not explicitly, then definitely implicitly, if it sounds like fun, don't do it. If it sounds like a good time, there's probably something wrong with it. So therefore, don't do it, right? And so you're living with these, I, and, and then you got 18 and you didn't have to go to church anymore. You didn't have to do that. You went to college and you got to explore your own stuff. And you realize like, if I wanted, like I had these desires that's, that perhaps were inhibited by the way that I was growing up or, or taught that I was wrong. And then I go and I'm like, I went to this place and I didn't get struck by lightning and people still, and I, and I, I, I and God, you know, I don't think that God hates me. And I think um, I, I'm kind of trying to figure some of this out. And so we, we, we have this feeling sometimes where we box things into, if it sounds uh, like um, if it sounds like fun, don't do it. And, and this self denial for the sake of self denial, and and that is a Lewis has something to say about that early on. If it lurks, or if there lurks in most modern minds, the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant, who was Immanuel Kant, he's a philosopher, and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian life. In other words, there are people in life who are very, very smart who talk to you about life should be lived at the basis of, of existence. Ignore the imaginative, live within reason-based focus at all times at whatever cost, because that's where life truly is. But that's not really Christianity. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. In other words, there are promises in the gospels about something like this gift of eternal life, that if you do this, you'll receive something. And, and the stoic side of us wants to say, I don't need anything in return. I don't need any gifts. I don't do this for the motivation of gifts. And, and we understand the value or the validity in a statement like that. But he's like, nevertheless, those promises are there. That Jesus, uh, John records a, a statement of Jesus saying, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. Well, I don't need a full life, Jesus. I just want to live in, in complete self-denial of myself. And, and he's like, no, 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 there's something in you that wants something more. It's okay that you want something more, but understand what those pointers are pointing you towards. Understand what it is that that longing within you has, that theology of desire, that we live with desires. What is that desire for and how do we agree? Not just accept it as it is, but begin to think critically about that. And then he goes on. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around or fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because you cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are like kids who don't even know what they're being offered. Guys, we're going to get on a plane. We're going to go to Disneyland. I hate planes, Dad. Why would you do this to me? Well, yes, but like Disneyland's on the other side of that. I don't even know what that is. I hate planes. You know I hate planes. Why would you do this to me? Why do you hate me so much? You're like, you don't even understand, right? We're far too easily pleased. I wish this wasn't true of me. And I'm pretty sure you wish it wasn't true of you either. At my funeral, I don't want my kids saying, one thing about dad, he was impossible to please. 
right? I don't want that. That's one side of the spectrum. But neither do I want them to say, I never saw my dad happier than watching the Zags on TV with takeout tie and a cold beer. Now, do I want those things? Yeah, sure, more than you think, yes. But I'd like to think of myself, and you probably think to yourself, as more complex than just that, more appreciative of just the finer things in life, that when he says people are fine, like they're fine with just simply uh, sex, food, ambition, or whatever, and that's enough, that we're easily sated, uh, we don't like that idea about us. And it's been true of the human condition for a really long time. In writing about the fall of Rome and, and trying to make sense of how Rome can go from like this magnificent, beautiful empire into like kind of finding out all the, of the flaws of it. One of their poets called Juvenal, uh, which sounds like a rapper's name, which it is a rapper's name, but not the same guy, Avi. This was several hundred years ago. Um, and, uh, and he writes this about like as a critique of culture, looking at society as a whole. And one of those writers, op-ed writers, that's like, you know, here's what's wrong with society. Here's what he says. Already long ago, from when we sold our vote to no man, the people in general, have abdicated our duties for the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything, now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses, bread and circuses, food and entertainment. You want to know how you control the people is what he would say as a critique? Give them bread and entertain them to death. Neil Postman wrote a fantastic book a long time ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death, that the detriment, the, the fault of society will be when we find ourselves simply living to amuse ourselves to death. That we are in a bad spot when our greatest concern is stuffing our faces and entertaining ourselves to death. Now, let me guess, I don't know this for sure, but let me guess how this plays out in your home, in your life, if you're married or significant other or just spend time in a household with a lot of people or whatever. My guess is that this has been a sensitive topic at some point in your recent history because on the spectrum of adventurer on one side and let's just stay in tonight sort of people, I found that rarely are two people, when I do premarital counseling, they're rarely evenly matched in this way. Now, you can both be more adventurous than the average person. These are the people who buy in RVs and travel around the world and take photos that you're like, oh, well, look at that wanderlust sort of thing. That's crazy. But there's typically one party that is more likely to have an active wish list on their Airbnb app than the other. And what happens in a scenario is one person's like, let's be adventurous. And the other person's like, yeah, except Netflix is like, if we don't watch it, we're basically paying for nothing. So we have to watch this thing. Who's going to watch our shows for us? And at its worst, it shows up when somebody, typically the more adventure of the two, looks at the other person and says, all you ever want to do is dot, dot, dot. And there's problems that we had on the other end too, for the person who's typically the more isolated and let's just stay home tonight sort of thing. Looking at the other person who's always go, 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 this you know, extroverted maniac saying, can we just be like just for a minute? And by a minute, I mean more than a literal minute, you moron. You know what I mean? If the good things in life, as we have said as a part of this series, are pointers towards something more, if when you encounter something in life that is like, that's really good, that brings out a level of beauty, I find I resonate with that thing. 
And it's something that's objective and not just subjective. And it points us towards something more. If we find ourselves the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. As Lewis would say in another book called Mere Christianity, that we shouldn't live in shame for desiring more and for desiring the good. So there we go. God is not angry with you for your desires for something more in life. I think that that's a challenge for us. But I think it's not just like, let's just not go towards that and think that that's the end goal. It's like the oasis in the desert that once you get there, it was never really water to begin with. It's always just, well, not here, but there, that one's good. That that's gonna provide me happiness. So I just keep moving on, moving on, moving on. He calls that inconsolable longing. And if all I'm doing is describing the last five to 10 years of your existence, you're like, well, when I get that job, I mean, we'll be fine financially then. Things will be great when that gets paid off. When you finally get back off your feet or back on your feet and get, get back to work or whatever, then we'll, be, then we'll be good. And life is spent always going, then we'll be good. Then we'll be good. Then we'll be good. And then you get there and you're like, it's still not good. Different problems just keeps moving on. So with that in mind, let's dive into our main topic for today, which shows up for us in what's called the parable of the tenants or talents, excuse me, uh, tenants. That'd be a, 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 <laughs> Jesus talking about landlords and money and rent. God, isn't it horrible nowadays? Whatever. Anyways, um, no, not that. Uh, talents, the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is uh, talking with a bunch of people and every once in a while he would get with them and say, um, let me try and describe for you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I think when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about necessarily a destination of a place that you go when you die, but what does life look like when it is aligned perfectly with the spirit? What does life look like when, when the, the request, or when, when you know the right thing to do and then you do it immediately and you don't pause and it's just like, this is life well lived, a life to the fullest. The kingdom of heaven looks perfectly like this. And he's gonna use a lot of illustrations. He's gonna, he's, he's speaking to an agrarian society. They're, they're farmers, most of them by nature, at least uh, they, you know, sustenance comes from what they can raise. That's what they eat and that's what they sell and that's what they trade and barter or whatever. And so a lot of times it has to do with, it's a farmer who lost a, a sheep, right? It's a, it, it's a guy who planted a cornfield or, or found this, this diamond in his field or this stone or whatever, this, this jewel. Uh, and then he goes and sells everything he owns. And, and so a lot of times he's using the things in the language that they know to kind of illustrate it. And so one day he says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Verse 14 of chapter 25. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man who's going on a journey, who's called his servants and has entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability, which makes sense, right? There, in your workplace, uh, probably there's somebody who have art, like their five talent ability individuals. They're the ones who have the best accounts. Uh, they're the ones who, when th their to-do list is the one that's like critical for the comp company. And then there's two bag people. And you're, you might be like, that's where I'm at. I'm a two bag person. I'm not the five and I'm definitely not the one. I'm right in the middle. I'm like the Goldilocks zone, right? I don't want to have too much responsibility here. I don't want to have the keys to the place. I don't want to have the codes for anything like that. If it rises or falls, it's not on me. It's not on me. I'm just an employee here. That's right. I'm a two-bagger, right? And then there's the one-bagger. who's like, why are you even here? What's going on? This is whatever, right? Uh, the man who received five bags of gold went at once, put his money to work and gained five bags of more because of course he did. He's a five-bagger. That's what five baggers do. So also the one with two bags gained two gold, uh, two bags of gold gained two more. But the one and the man who'd received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, hit his master's money, which immediately we know, uh-oh, there's the, 
There's the little niche in the story. Where's this thing headed? You, you know exactly where this is going. That's not going to be a good thing for him. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's the story. That's the, that, that's the big picture of it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like that whole idea, that Shakespearean thing of, uh, to what shall I compare thee? A rose of any other name would smell such a, such a sweet or whatever. It's, it's like, what do I, how do I describe this to you? And he begins to talk about money and masters going away because many of them probably were servants who have had masters who have gone away, who had entrusted their, his wealth or their wealth with him and, and they have choices to be able to make within this. When something is outside of our experience, when Jesus is trying to explain to them what life is looked like or best looked like in this way, and it's like outside of an experience, he has to use things that make sense for them to be able to describe it. And you do this all the time. You've done this with your, if you have kids, um, we, we, as parents, we get to practice this a lot. We have a five-year-old. Um, my five-year-old uh, just started kindergarten this year. So for the last two, three years of his life, as far as he like has memories of, he's watched his brothers and uh, his brother and sisters get on a bus at 8.15 in the morning and take them away. And then he sees them when they get off the bus. And it's just like this magical bus that takes them somewhere. And then he found out it's a place called school, right? And he's like, dad, tell me about this school thing. Well, we had put him in preschool. And so I, I said, well, school, he's like, dad, what's school going to be like? It's like preschool, but it's cheaper for mommy and daddy and it's longer, right? So that's what it's like. The parable as a whole, I think, is about what you do with what you've been entrusted with. In life, what's the point of the parable? That there are some people in life who have been given five bags of talent. Uh, they came from uh, money. They came from this. They came, they're just set up. There's more people. There's people in life who have been better set up for, you know, quote unquote, uh, proverbial success than you. There are five bag people. There are one bag people. And then there's typically us right in that two bag zone. You know, people who are probably better at whatever it is in, in life than you are. And you know that people are worse. You know, people who are wealthier than you, people who are poorer than you. And, and we're trying to figure out how to live in that, again, that Goldilocks zone of it. And I think the point of what he's trying to say is that you're never evaluated based on what somebody else had because the context of the story is after the five bag person comes back and says, look at what you gave me, I brought back five more. And the, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been entrusted with a little, now I'm gonna entrust you with a lot. Come enjoy and share in my experience and my, and my joy and my pleasure. And then the two person, the two bag person shows up and says, master, you gave me two. You didn't give me five, you gave me two. So I got two for you. The master looks at me and says, well, you didn't do as good as the five person, but you did, no, he didn't. He doesn't say that. He says the exact same, it's, the, it's copy and paste. It's the exact same comments. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been trusted with a little. I'm gonna prepare, I'm, you know, now I'm gonna give you a lot. Come and share in your master's, in, in your master's joy and, and master's pleasure. So again, the moral of it is, looking at it and not being obsessed with what other people have and all the up things that they have that I'm just stuck here with this, that you are accountable for what you've been given that, and you need to be a good steward and we need to be, I need to be a good steward of what we have with all of this and not be like the person who goes, well, you only gave me one. I only have one. He's got five. 
What am I going to do with one? The answer should have been turn one into one more. Like, just do what you have with what you can. I mean, at least give it to a banker so it gets something on it. But you did nothing with it. You had opportunity and you did nothing with it. That's the problem that we have. The third character in the story is the crux of it. But it's the end uh, of the master's response that I want to focus on. So that, that's the overall, I, I want to let you know that that's the overall tenor of the poem. Uh, but it's the second response, which is, again, the exact same response that he gave to the person who had five and turned it into five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. If you've ever attended a funeral of somebody who's religious, this may have come up as part of the ceremony. At some point, you know, the family walks down, they talk about the obituaries, here's pictures and photos of this person. And somebody will say, I know we're going to see them someday. And I know that he showed up or she showed up and God, the father looked at that person that we all love and missed it dearly and said, well done, good and faithful servant. And then they followed that up with like some laundry list of all the Sunday schools that that person taught or how many small groups they led or how much money they gave to the church or whatever. But here is where we find an objective good for which we yearn and we long to be praised and recognized by an authority figure. That Jesus in picking and choosing what he's saying to these people about what they want is again a pointer towards something for us. How much of what you and I do is based on someone who's in positional authority over us, looking at something that we've accomplished and saying to us, job well done. How much time do you spend because you know this, right? The difference between positional authority, somebody who's just been at the company longer than you have and has more letters after their name perhaps or has a higher paycheck, you know, higher wage bill than, than you do. And you have to work for them. You have to kind of do your job and, and make things happen, but you like don't respect them. What they say about you means a little bit, but it doesn't mean everything. You care, there are people in your life whose opinion weighs more than other people's and sometimes more than other people's all combined. This is why we say sometimes uh, in life, especially later in life, I just wanted to make mom proud or, or dad proud, right? Because for them, they not only had positional authority, but perhaps they had even legitimate authority for us over, over time. And, and now, the, you know, they're parents and you're adults and you make your own decisions and they don't have the same authority that you have, but you're still doing it out of an honor and respect for them. So I want to live a life that makes my dad proud, but I don't, he doesn't have legitimate authority over me in that sense. It's more like just a, a respect and honor thing. But you have people, and I have people in my life, whose words weigh more, that they have a legitimate, earned authority, that I care very much about their approval. And that I question oftentimes, am I worthy? Am I worthy? Am I worthy? And so Jesus stands up in front of a bunch of people one day and says, the kingdom of heaven is like people who were good stewards with what they've been given and got to hear from a legitimate authority figure in their life, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you've ever found yourself living day to day, month to month, jumping from job to job, trying to feel like, am I worthy of this? Am I worthy of this? And somebody, and even like sometimes even your spouse or wife or somebody would be like, you're, you're, you're good, honey. Like, thank you. You're, you're doing good. And you're like, yeah, but you have to say that, right? Like, there's like a weird obligation to be like, you can't be, you don't want to be the wife that's like, eh, you're so-so. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't translate well. I get to talk about you to my counselor when you do that. But when you're like, you're good, you're like, yeah, but. I want, it from, I want to hear it and I want to feel it from somebody that, that I genuinely look at and appeal to as an authority figure. 
And that, that a lot of times is what is the driving motivating factor for why you spend so many hours at work working on a project that's like, it was fine. It was fine three days ago, but you just kept factoring it and toying with it and tinkering with it. And your spouse goes, why are you investing so much time in this? It's just a stupid thing that somebody's going to get an email and reply and go, nice job, send. you be like, all that for that? Why are you doing this? But you do it and you can't shake it and you can't stop living like that. You can't stop trying to appeal to some legitimate authority to make sure, am I good? Am I worthy? Am I doing good? I just want to know what it takes to win. Am I winning at life? Am I doing good? That exists in all of us. And Lewis would say, not in the same way that when you experience a little bit of beauty, when you read a book and, and, and something, it's like it, dra- it's like it, pro- it provides you the moment of transcendence towards something, that there's something that was not in that, but through that, that drew you to something bigger. In this idea of wanting approval from a, a, a temporary uh, legitimate authority, there's something in you that longs for that, that every single person was created with a desire for us to hear from our creator well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, now I'll make you faithful. I'll see, you're gonna get blessed with a lot. Come and enjoy in your master's happiness. What if all of those are just pointers towards something real? So with that as the backdrop, we're gonna go into a little bit longer of a reading of Lewis to kind of finish our time together, but it's, I, I wanted you to have that to kind of be like, that's the framework, that's the lens by which I read through this and look this. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. Because Jesus said that. Jesus said that. What what did he mean? I have to be young again? I have to be like, you know, my imagination's all, all over the place and I have no responsibilities? No, and nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Which is why your kids make little tickets and invite you to the talent show downstairs in the basement. And they charge you 50 imaginary cents for the tickets and sell you all kinds of stuff. And they say, daddy, daddy, come watch me dance. And you go down there and they do a play. They have their cousins over and they do some sort of a play. And they're, and they're, they're doing this. And if you're on your phone, they're like, dad, hey, phone away, off screens. No screen time for you. I'm, I'm performing right now. And they get done with one. You're like, that was so good. And they're like, that's act one. Wait till you see act 27. You're gonna love this. It only gets better from here, dad. And they keep performing for you. And all the while they're performing out of the corner of their eye, what are they doing? They're watching you to make sure you're watching them and that you approve. And we look at this and we see this and we understand. He says it's so easy when you see it in the life of a child. And we think somehow that we outgrow this, but we never truly do. The way that we enter into heaven is that we are constantly doing our life going, are you seeing this? Are you watching this? Am I doing good? What do you think? Do you like this? Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. So if you don't have a kid who's inviting you to a talent show, you probably have a dog or a cat or something. It's like, am I good? You like me? Yeah, yeah, tail's going. Do I win? What do I get? Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding something. Understanding this. What is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures? The specific pleasure of the inferior. The pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. 
Meaning that's been with us the entire time. It's easy to spot in some of these earlier ones, but we do not ever escape it that that is still true even of us. And he goes on, I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience, the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns in the deadly poison of self-admiration If I do this often enough and I hear words of affirmation enough, I know it's going to go to my ego. It's going to go to my head. I'm going to really think I'm worth something. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all home and nearly beyond belief, or beyond, uh, it should be hope, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. And it goes on. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are simply patted on the back. Because that's essentially what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is like being patted on the back and being like, you're good, you got it, you're You're worthy. And be like, that's uh, simplistic, come on. I mean, more than that, right? But proud misunderstandings behind that dislike. In the end, the face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, can be turned on each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Last slide, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted as an artist would delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That that is the burden of glory, the weight of glory in which we all carry. The desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be approved of by our creator. It shows up in small glimpses in the way that we want to be approved of, seen, focused on attention on either by our spouse or significant other, our parents, our kids, our boss in like a weird limited sense, right? But something, am I good? Am I enough? 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 And that is what is offered to us. That when he looks, when, 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 when we see this and we feel it in the, like the short-term stuff, it only points us towards our bigger need of this. And that's why Jesus felt so compelled to stand upon a mountainside one day and talk to these people and go, listen, the kingdom of heaven's like this. It's like a master who left. And he said, here's some opportunity. Here's some potential. Do with it what you will. And they steward that option and that opportunity well. And he comes back and has the grace and the mercy to be able to be like, you know what? I I'm not gonna judge you based on anything, anybody else, what they had. I judge you based alone on what you did with what you had. And just so you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Like we all long to hear that from people who we care about. And I think that what he's saying here is that it, that extends not just beyond that, that we long to hear that from the words of our creator, from the mouth of our creator, the same exact thing. So, a couple of questions for you to kind of process through this and be like, all right, well, what do I do with this? What, what, how, what are my next steps in this? Because again, this is kind of a general principle sort of thing. I get it. 
I put together a few questions um, that I would love for you if you came with somebody to kind of dialogue over lunch, coffee, whatever, or if you find somebody, or just yourself. If you're like, I'm not, a, I'm not the extrovert kind of person. I'm the, when you were mentioned like, hey, why don't we stay in tonight? I live that way. That's a, that sounds glorious, right? Then great. If you do a journal thing or, or, or write this thing out yourself, perfect. All right, just so, something to do with what you've had. Number one is when was the last time you, uh, someone with true authority in your eyes told you, well done? And how did it impact you? What did it feel like? What did it spur you on to do? Someone with legitimate authority for you. And they said, well done. What did it do for you? Number two, if you were to be fully honest, in what ways or in what arenas of life are you too easily satisfied? So one of these is like hopeful and one of these is like, check yourself. You know what I mean? In what ways, if you were to be fully honest, am I just simply too easily satisfied in my life? And I deserve more, not in like a, uh, ego thing, but like, I, I want to, I don't want to be easily sated in that way. I want something beyond this. So questions to consider things to remember. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this week that you would help us process through this in our own individual lives and whatever it is that we are going through and the relationships that are dominating our schedule and our thought life and everything that is expected of us this week and the things that we work so hard to do to kind of get little check marks either at, uh, because it's school and it's grades or it's uh, it's at, at home in the, in, the, in the home life and just being a good dad, good mom, whatever, or perhaps in the workplace environment or whatever. Uh, I pray that you would help us to have those those remind ourselves that in those feelings, those emotions that are involved in those things are indicators of a pointer towards something even greater, that we desire that from you and that you do offer that to us and that you look at us and uh, you've, you've gifted us with some sort of talent, some sort of something, a life, the gift that is life and look at us anticipating what it is, what is that we're gonna do with a gift of life that we've been given. So I pray that you would help us to uh, find uh, what it is that we're called to do. Give us the wisdom to know what that is. Encourage you something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.